Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I hope that you are enjoying this series on the book of Acts. What I'm doing is very liberating for a preacher, and that is I'm just going at the pace I want to go. And uh, I'm not saying this has got to go. You know, in a Sunday morning series, you, you announce six weeks or eight weeks or four weeks. You have to stay on that because the next series is starting. But it's so nice to have 30 Wednesday nights scattered out over an entire year. If I want to take all 30 on the book of Acts, fine. If I do 12 or 15 and stop it, then that's great. But it means that I can do each Wednesday um, or deal with each Wednesday one portion of the scripture that, uh, that I feel led to that time. Next Wednesday will be a, a critical turning point in the book of Acts. But this Wednesday is sort of the, um, the conclusion, if you will, of the first section of the book of Acts. How I think of that post-Pentecost and up to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That, that time of the church trying to find its sea legs in Jerusalem. It is often a part of the the history of the church and the study of the book of Acts that is unfortunately overlooked because the 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 juicy stuff, the exciting stuff is Pentecost and and the conversion of Saul and the miracles and the signs and everybody kind of flits from mountaintop to mountaintop. But there's some really, really good stuff in this tonight and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take those and turn, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to read verse 17 of Acts chapter 4. The Sanhedrin is speaking. The officers and leaders of the Jewish religious high court in Jerusalem. At this time, under the the political, uh, if I can use the word, the um, domain of the Sadducees. We talked on last week about the, the three major parties of, of Jewish leadership in the, at the time of Jesus. The, the, the Herodians, highly compromised, totally political, uh, secularized. Um, Herod wasn't even properly a Jew. He was an Idumean. And um, he was appointed king of Judea by Caesar. So it's totally compromised, totally giving. Then there's the Pharisees. They were the, in charge of the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus. Um, and they were highly legalistic. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. Uh, they're, so they're the more uh, supernatural side of the Sanhedrin, but highly legalistic and just as lethal as anybody else. The Pharisees were a lethal group. Then there's the Sadducees, and they are a, they're a um, non-supernatural. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. They, they don't believe in the supernatural, but they are just as legalistic, tied to the law. 
So it's, it's a remarkable group. The Sadducees are a remarkable group because they are highly legalistic, believe in the law of Moses, just as lethal and dangerous as the Pharisees, but lacking even the Pharisees' ability to believe in the resurrection and in angels and in miracles. So Peter and John have worked a miracle. God has used them to work a straight-out miracle. Everybody sees it. Everybody's aware of it. What do the Sadducees, how do they respond? Okay, we'll read uh, verse 16 and 17. What shall we do to these men, Peter and John? For indeed, that a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. Remember, these people don't believe in miracles. But they say, okay, we've seen a miracle. We can't deny it. It did happen. It's a miracle. Maybe it's a one-off, but we see it. But look at verse 17. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name, meaning Jesus. Now think of the depravity of a religious leadership that would say our doctrine of non-miraculous legalism is so important to us that even if we see a miracle that we cannot deny, we choose to adhere to our doctrine, and this man has had a miracle. We don't deny that, but we're going to do everything we can so that nobody else get one, that it spread no further. Imagine that. That's who the early church was dealing with. Let's pray. Lord, in the next few moments tonight, we pray that your spirit will just enliven our hearts, quicken our spirits. We believe you for it. We thank you, God, that the supernatural power of the church primitive has not departed. In Jesus' name, amen. The evolving community of believers in Jerusalem is finding who they are. Their experience, we talked about this last time. We talked about their they're um, developing, I, I, maybe I use the wrong word, evolving, but their maturing character of the community of faith in Jerusalem is one of faith and love and grace and generosity and, and the gathering together, the, the sacramental element of the church of baptism and holy communion. But that rising culture Christian culture. It's not called Christian yet. We'll come to that later on in the book of Acts. But of believers, the, the followers of Christ, they're all Jews living in a, the capital of Judea at that time, Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem. Everybody who's opposed to them are Jews. The, the Romans don't care about them. This is not a deal with the Romans at this time. This, they, the Romans killed Jesus, yes, but this is all an internecine issue. This is tribes of Jews against tribes of Jews, not, not tribes as in the Old Testament, but groups of Jews. So this rising culture of Jewish believers, everybody in the story is Jewish. We can't forget that. Peter, James, John, all of the disciples, everybody, all these converts, all these miracles, and all the people who are opposed to them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. This is the Jewish capital of the conquered, occupied Jewish country. 
So it is now the, the conflict is a rising subculture that is threatening to and inconvenient to the prevailing culture. So we now see culture against culture, and this is rising. I want to just contrast a few things. The Sadducees, they're the predominant group in the Sanhedrin now. They have supplanted the Pharisees that were there when Jesus was a few years earlier. Now the Sadducees are about power, naked power. The rising church is about supernatural power. Signs, wonders, miracle, thousands upon thousands are being converted. This is not a small thing happening off somewhere. Thousands of Jews in Jerusalem are becoming believers in the resurrected Christ and in his supernatural power. The Sadducees believe in the form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. But the rising culture, the developing culture of the, of the primitive church is about a deeper form of holiness that is based on a, a huge sense of the fear of God. The Sadducees are about legalism. The rising church is about grace. The Sadducees are riddled with hate. The church is built upon the doctrine of the prince of peace and love. So you can see that these, these clouds, these cultural clouds are, are going to clash. In Acts 4.17, which we read, the Sadducees sense this rising culture of faith and joy and hope, and they're enjoying favor with the people. They're wonderful folks. They're generous. They're giving. They're loving. They're signs and wonders and miracles. The Sadducees don't even deny that. They don't even deny that. They just say, we got to stop it. So if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, will you just hear this? As the culture of Christianity in any place or time finds a more robust and muscular expression, the level of conflict with the prevailing society will increase. So the stronger our Christian, the expression of the community of Christian faith, the greater the conflict. The friction begins to be more and more. So when I was uh, working very young as a missionary, I was in Mexico, I believe it was during Lincoln's second term, if I remember right. <laughs> it is so rude to laugh at me. But uh, I went out to preach at a village uh, called, uh, had the unusual name of Boca de Juan Capitan, the mouth of Captain John. I have absolutely no knowledge of why the village was named the mouth of Captain John. But we went out to Boca to preach. There was a little tiny church there. And um, they were telling me about the, the founding of the church. So there was a, a Mexican pastor evangelist uh, named Bebo who had gone out there to Boca to preach. Week after week after week after week. It was, it was known as a violent, bad uh, village. Even there had been a murder in the village some months before. And the Ruales, the federal police wouldn't even go out and investigate. They just told them, bury, bury the person. We're not coming. 
And, uh, and that had that reputation. Babel had a wife and four little girls. And he would go out there on a, an amazing contraption. I've never seen anything like it. He put a flatbed on the back of his motorcycle. And then his wife would ride behind him double on the seat of the motorcycle. And he laid the little girls down like cordwood on that and roped them so that they would ride out there. And why did he go out to Boca de Juan Capitan to preach? Why would he do that? Because they paid him so much or because they loved him or because his ministry was so so anointed there? No, they hated him. They would throw rocks at him. It was awful. Then the really bad thing happened. Some of the women and girls in the village got converted. There is nothing that inconveniences a sinful man like a righteous woman. And they began to get, and the men in the village began to get angrier and angrier. Finally, Bible built a little tiny church, and it's the church I preached in, about the size of a, of a small chicken house, concrete floor, little bare benches. And uh, one night, uh, they began to uh, put the men, the few women that were there with the pastor, they began to put their machetes in through the cracks in the walls and slide them up and down like that so that anybody who was sitting by the wall would get hit. So everybody moved to the middle, and they're all scrunching up, and these machetes going up and down like that. And then finally, uh, five men came in. Uh, two of them had shotguns. Two had machetes. One had a rope. They came up to the front where Bebel, Pastor Bebel was, and they said, all right, we've, we've put up with this. We're tired of this. You've turned this village upside down. And so we're going to give you a chance, load your girls up, get your wife on your motorcycle and leave, or we're going to tie your hands in front of the whole church and we're going to bend you over on the altar and cut your head off. So we'll give you five minutes to load your motorcycle and go. Bibbo laughed at them. They, they told me he laughed. He got down on his knees and laid his head over on the little concrete altar. And he said, he said, you, you can't take my head from me. I put it on the altar years ago. So he said, go ahead. And they said those men came. The, the people were telling me about it. They came and stood over him with their machetes. And they raised their hands. Up, their, their body would begin to shake. Finally, one of them dropped his machete. Another one dropped the shotgun, all this. So these people were telling me about this. And I said, is this true? Is this really true? And the men standing there said, we're the elders of the church. I said, yes, but is this story true? They said, yes, we were those five men. When the, when the rising... When the rising power and authority of true holiness and true love and true grace and true commitment punctures into the soft underbelly of an opposing, of an opposing culture, yes, we should. Yes, we should pray for power. Yes, we should believe for a rising Christian culture. I just think we need to be clear on it. The greater the cultural contrast, the greater the conflict. Now, I want to give you three incidences. They are not in there. I'm going to give you to you in order, but they're not in chapter order here. As I told you, I'm not doing line by line or, or verse by verse or chapter by chapter. I want to give you these three examples of the prevailing culture fighting back. So Christianity begins to be more and more inconvenient. 
You, you have control over a totally dominated, brow-beaten, owned religious subculture where people are sick and wounded and afflicted and, and you have total control over them. And then along comes a culture, a rising wave. Thousands and thousands of your people are being won to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders and miracles. And therefore, your personal and political religious power over them is being threatened because the power that saved them and healed them and delivered them from demons is now the central reality in their lives. You feel threatened. And you're not just going to stand there and let that happen. You fight back. So we, we talked about the last week, the first arrest of Peter and John. We just read part of that. The first arrest of Peter and John for working this miracle. Now I want to use three subsequent points of conflict following that. If you will, turn to chapter 5. And in verse 12... Um, you remember I, I said to you that the fear of God was huge, huge part of the primitive church culture. Verse 11, and great fear came upon all the churches. Many has heard those things. We're, we'll deal with Ananias and Sapphira next week, but not tonight. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now let's just hold a minute. What is Solomon's porch or portico? It is um, it is on the Temple Mound. So they're meeting on the Temple Mound. There's a long line of colonnade, a portico covered area inside the Temple Mound. And the people are all Jews. They all go there. Peter and John, everybody's Jews. So they all go on the Temple Mound. So their central point of gathering, praise, worship, communion, all of that is where? The Temple. Outside, outside in the, on the temple mound in Solomon's porch. So this is not happening off in some block of flats in South Jerusalem. This is very central. Are you, do you see what I'm saying? They couldn't have chosen a place to maximize the conflict anymore. And by the hands of apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest, there no man joined himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. That doesn't shock us to say both of men and women, does it? But that, that's a shocking statement to a first century Jew. Men and women getting saved, just like they're like, you know, crazy, equal. <laughs> Think of that. So you see, this is a, a cultural upheaval that's happening here in more ways than one. Insomuch that they brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities around about Jerusalem, unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits and they were healed every one. Then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is of the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. Do you hear that? Signs, wonders, miracles, demons are cast out. People are rejoicing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom the Sadducees worship. And they are filled with indignation. 
Why? Because it's, it's about the power of their culture against the rising tide of culture that's turning everything upside down. Even women just come in, onto the porch and say, okay, I want to be a Christian too. They're not using the word Christian, but that's what they're saying. Then the high priest rose up and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them into common prison. Okay, I just want to pause with the contrast and and conflict. As one culture rises, it says in verse 11, we just read verse 12, and the apostles laid their hands on people and they received signs and wonders and miracles and deliverance, right? And the Sadducees laid their hands on the apostles for prison. The contrast is this, on whom do you lay your hands and for what? On whom do you cast a shadow? This is one of the most amazing verses of Scripture in the whole Bible, in my view. That when Peter walked the streets and his shadow fell on people, they got healed. (laughs) So at uh, St. Simon's Island... Uh, There is a huge Methodist retreat ground there, and I've spoken there many, many times. And uh, once I was there with um, um, my family, we were, my daughter, who's now in her 40s, was maybe six, I guess. And uh, I was there speaking at a big conference convention there. And we got out one morning early to take a walk, and I had my little daughter by my hand, and um, my sister's son was with us. So I just had the little boy who was maybe a year and a half younger by this hand and my daughter by this hand. And we were walking around in the beauty of that little Methodist retreat ground. And we came around the corner of a building and there was a huge, larger than life-size statue of John Wesley in black granite. And he looked a little sober, you know, kind of looking down at the little children with me. And we just paused there. And the little boy, my nephew, said, what? is that and my daughter in the way that only a woman can who knows something a man doesn't she put her hand on her little hip and she said that is the shadow of God don't you know that (laughs) now listen to this everybody walks through this world casting a shadow If the power and light and life of God is within you, your shadow is light and healing. If the power and light and grace of God are behind you, you're simply blocking the light from somebody that wants to receive it. So it's a critical question. On whom and for what purpose do you lay hands and on whom and for what result do you cast a shadow? You do cast a shadow. Everyone does. The drunk who comes home at two in the morning, terrorizes his poor wife and kids, is casting a shadow of death and destruction. We all cast a shadow. So look at verse 18. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, go, stand, speak in the temple to the people, all the words of this life. So do you see again 
Nothing is happening in a closet. Go into the temple. Go right into the heart of this prevailing religious culture. And, and there preach. So there is this, there is this uh, powerful rescue from prison, an angel. Now, then the, fair, the high priest and the captain of the temple, and the chief priest, they hear that they're out and that they're preaching, but they're afraid to just go and arrest them. They're afraid that people will stone them to death. Thousands and thousands of people are, are now part of this rising subculture. So they bring them into the, into the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 28 of chapter 5. Did we not straightly, straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Look at the last part. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They mean it one way, but actually the whole purpose of preaching is to bring the blood of Jesus upon you. <laughs> then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, now look at verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, I'm bringing that out because do you remember the first time they were arrested? That trial ends with Peter asking a question. He says, should we obey God or man? And he says to them, I'll leave the answer to that question to you. Do you remember that? Whether I should obey you or God, I'll leave that with you. Now he's arrested again, and his boldness and authority have taken another step forward. He doesn't ask that question. He tells them, I should obey God, not you. So the cultures are clashing more, and the conflict is rising. Now turn to chapter 6, in chapters 6 and 7. There, there is the rise of, a, of a, a deacon named Stephen. And, and this man is used mightily of God. Signs, wonders, service. He, he's every pastor in the world says, oh God, I'm not asking for 30 of them, just one deacon like Stephen. And he, he is, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. But finally, the, the mob attacks him and they, they are angry, they're furious, they're fueled by this hatred. And they're going to, they're, they're demanding answers from him. Stephen, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Stephen basically preaches to them. And the, the theme of his sermon, it's quite lengthy. The theme of his sermon is this. Throughout the history of the Jewish people, God has sent messengers, prophets, signs, even Moses. Even Moses said, there will come one after me, and you, you must believe him, and you won't. And he goes through this whole history, basically, of Judaism. And then he says, we have always been a stiff-necked and rebellious people rejecting God, just like you rejected Jesus and killed him. Now, that's not nice. <laughs> that, that's just, that's not being relevant. That's not being culturally sensitive. That These people were seekers. 
And uh, he has not been sensitive. Uh, he tells them, you, you, are, you are sprung from a culture of rebellion and resistance to the supernatural things of God. Uh, your forefathers murdered the prophets. You murdered Jesus, and God has raised him from the dead. And I, this, this last scene is horrible and everything, but it's funny in a way. It says they put their fingers in their ears and began to scream. Isn't that not funny? How many of you had a younger sibling? Anybody here have a younger sibling? Okay, my brother Tim, when we get in an argument, finally he got to play. He could never beat me in an argument. Finally, he just put his fingers in his ears and screamed. Ah! And I'd stop. You stop. There's nothing you can do. And he'd watch me. And the minute I start to open my mouth, he'd go, ah! And I thought about Tim in the third grade when these people, he's preaching Jesus and they just put their finger, ah, oh, and they grab stones and kill him. As the cultures become, the contrast between the cultures becomes greater and greater, the conflict becomes greater and greater. But the conflict, if, if the culture of the community of faith is evolving and developing correctly and maturely, the anger and the resistance and the fighting will all be on one side. Listen to Dr. Mark. When some of the fighting is on our side, it means we haven't developed, we're not where we ought to be. <laughs> Everybody, I, this, we don't get to stone anybody. We don't get to stone anybody. We get to get stoned. No. That, <laughs> it's the fruit of a misspent youth. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? You, you can't find any place in here where Peter has evolved. Remember the night of the arrest? He grabs a sword and cuts an ear off a cop. And now he's evolved to the place where he is basically the leader of a rising culture of supernatural power and grace and love that's not whacking anybody. And, and that's very convicting to us in 21st century American Christianity, or it ought to be. Now we'll look at the, at the third one. If you'll turn all the way to chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Well, let's just begin with verse 1. So on. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. John and, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So we're, we're this people now, we're talking all the way back to the boat on the Sea of Galilee, the bulging nets. That's who this is. James, not James, the brother of Jesus. We'll come to him later. This is James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because Herod saw it please the Jews, now let's just pause a moment, because I don't want to cast some kind of crazy anti-Semitic sound on this. Who does he mean the Jews? He doesn't mean all the Jewish people. So if we say, America signed a treaty with France, did America? <laughs> really? Because I've like never been called. I've never been handed a pen. America has never signed a treaty with France. Somebody in a position of authority representing America signed the treaty with France. 
You understand what I'm saying? So when it says it pleased the Jews, do not impose that on the Jewish people. Everybody in the story is Jewish. James is Jewish. It didn't please that Jew to be killed. Are we communicating? It's just important. That I don't want to bludgeon that point, but, uh, but you can hear voices that impose a kind of anti-Semitic sound on, on verses like that. It pleased the Jews. And because he saw it pleased the Jewish leadership, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. What's another name for the days of unleavened bread? Passover. So we're, we're right back. Peter has now been arrested at Passover, which is exactly where Jesus was arrested. Now, now we've had Stephen stoned to death. James, no trial, no nothing. Herod just went in and stabbed him with a sword and killed him. The conflict is becoming more lethal. The anger, the response of this prevailing culture. We've got to get this stopped. We stop it with threatening if we can. We'll stop it with, with beatings if we can. Stop it with stonings if we can. Now we're going to stop it with the sword, but we've got to stop it. So the conflict is rising as the contrast becomes greater and clearer. You can see the contrast surely between Simon Peter and Herod. That, con that contrast is, is rising and causing a greater and greater conflict. Now, they arrest, he arrests Peter, and he's going to kill him too. He, uh, he puts him into prison, and he is guarded with four quaternions. A quaternion's four, so that's 16 soldiers. And one night, Peter is asleep between two soldiers, chained inside the inner prison, door locked, asleep between two soldiers, guarded by 14 more. And an angel comes, and wakes Peter up, says, smites, smites him on the side. Doesn't mean he clubbed him. He said, hey, wake up. So get up, put your clothes on, get your shoes on. So when Peter stands up, his chains fall off. The guards are still asleep. He, he gets up. Peter thinks he's having a vision. Wouldn't, wouldn't you, am I the only one wouldn't you like to live at such a rarefied atmosphere of the supernatural that, that you're just, oh, this is just another vision. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Visions have evidently become so natural to Peter that he thinks, he thinks he's having another vision. So they walk toward the gate. The gate springs open. They walk toward the outer gate. The gate springs open. They walk out into the outer street, and the angel says, okay, go home. And it says, at that moment, it dawned on Peter, wow, this is really happening. <laughs> I'm not, maybe I'm the only one here. I think some stuff in the Bible is really funny. That's really funny. St. Peter's standing in the street. And he says, yeah, wow, I'm really out. <laughs> and it says, it, it, that's the first moment that he realized. I, he thought he was having a dream. I've, I've had it the other way. Have you ever had it the other way, where you dream something and wake up and thought it was real, but it isn't? Peter has something real and thinks it's a dream, but it's not a dream. So he goes to, um, the Bible's not clear here, but let me tell you what I think, and my opinion is 
no better than anybody else's, but I have the microphone. <laughs> he goes to the house of a woman named Mary, who is the mother of John Mark. I believe this Mary is Peter's sister and that John Mark is Peter's nephew. And John Mark appears more times in to come, and he has also already appeared once at the arrest of Jesus. So he goes to Mary's house and knocks on the door, and they're inside having a prayer meeting. Again, maybe you all don't think this is funny. This is very funny to me. They're inside praying while the little maid doesn't want to break up the prayer meeting, so she just jumps up and runs to answer the door. When she gets to the door, Peter says, open the door, open the door. She recognizes it's Simon Peter's voice. <laughs> she panics and doesn't open the door. So she runs back into the prayer meeting and she says, Simon Peter, is at, he's at the door. And they say, no, you're crazy. He's not at the door. She said, no, I'm, no, listen, I'm telling you he's at the door. And their explanation is actually a sign of their lack of faith. They say, it's like, it's, it's not really Peter, it's like his spirit is there. His spirit is there. Now, an old man in Cartersville, Georgia, told me one time, faith is when you pr go to a prayer meeting to pray for rain and carry an umbrella. These people are in there praying for Simon Peter but when they hear the announcement that he's been released, they say, no, he hasn't. <laughs> so there is a, sometimes I think we may, I, I have made this, the rising community of faith in Jerusalem to be, you know, so perfect and wonderful. They aren't perfect and wonderful. They have some issues. And this one is funny. So they, they let Peter in. Now, what do we learn from these three things? The first is this. As the community of faith becomes stronger and develops in its true spirit, the community of faith, okay, what I'm going to say now, do you ever start in to some place in a sermon where you can feel the ice cracking under your feet? Every Sunday. I, every Sunday. Oh, okay. I don't try it every Sunday, but I'll try it here. Look, this is, this is a word to the American church, and it's this. Because in Christianity, I'm, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. I'm not saying we shouldn't have Christian politicians. God knows we need them, uh, uh, all of that. But what I'm saying is we can have a spirit-filled, Holy Ghost, blood-washed Christian governor elected to every state in the United States, and that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of God. So whenever we buy into the proposition that political action and activity and all of that get laws passed that are conducive to the Christian community that we're bringing in the kingdom, we may be making things better for ourselves and making the world and community better in general. But actually, that's not the way Christianity changes the culture in which it lives. I'm just saying Christians can operate in that way, and I'm not saying it's wrong or unchristian. Maybe I'm making, maybe I'm making a separation without a difference. 
We should be active in the political realm and get laws passed that are good and wholesome and everything. But the real operating capital of the body of Christ is not political activity. It's, it's the supernatural presence of God in us. And, that, and we see that in this primitive church in Jerusalem. They're not trying, they're not saying, they're not having that prayer meeting saying, you know what we got to do? We got to get some people on the Sanhedrin. We got to, we got to, you know what we got to do? We got to get the Sadducees out of office and get believers in that office. You know what we, I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to get rid of Caesar. He's the real problem. We need to get rid of Herod. All of those things would be good. Herod was a monster. But we'll see in the next few weeks, God takes care of Herod. God takes care of Herod. God took care of Caesar. So when we see a rising, robust, muscular, powerful Christianity, what does that muscular Christianity look like? It's not armed and dangerous. It's filled with love and grace. It lives well and dies well. It prays for people who are stoning it to death. It lives in grace. It lives in truth. It's, It's gentle, loving, and enjoys favor, and there are signs and wonders and miracles. But that's the nature of a kingdom church. As it gets better and stronger and healthier, it inconveniences the part, the greater part of the culture that doesn't want stuff to look like that. And these people are not operating in the same stuff we're operating in. These are the people with the swords. Herod killed James with a sword. These are the people with rocks in their hands. When we pick up swords and rocks, we don't make things better for the kingdom. We just look like them. Some of you may not like this, but I ain't running for nothing in Georgia. <laughs> this, is a, this is a strong point, and it's, it's a convicting point, and something we need to think of. That the church, the true body of believers, the community of faith, is a different atmosphere with different activities and looks different. Now, I'm not saying we can't ever... Be active in this community. We must be in the world. Jesus said that. We're just not of it. So let me close with this. I've decided that my daughter was right about the statue of John Wesley. First, I said, no, no, baby, it's not the shadow of God. Just Brother Wesley. But I've decided she was right. John Wesley was, in his generation, the shadow of God. And when he walked the streets of England, people got saved and healed and delivered and better. England got better. There were were people that changed laws. William Wilberforce got laws changed. Slavery was ended in England long before it was in the U.S., So there were things that changed, but it changed because of the shadow of God had fallen on the society. So everywhere you walk, 
you cast a shadow. And what I pray is that now in this our hour of need, in the winter of our discontent, that God may send someone, many someones, persons, a robust, muscular, powerful community of faith that can cast across this poor, wounded world the shadow of God. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.